I'm very happy to be here today and to see all of you who are here. I'm very pleased to be able to be your speaker this morning, and uh, I hope that what we have to say will be suitable and appropriate for the Lord's Day worship service. It's been a while since I've been here, and of course, we have a turnover in the congregational attendance since I've been here, and many of you people I see, and I think I'm at different places across the Brotherhood, but I'm glad you're here today, and I'm glad to see you. This morning, I invite your attention to the reading of God's Word in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. I'll read a short verse here to introduce the general thoughts of the sermon. The record says, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear came, fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now that's what we want to talk about for a little while this morning, magnifying the name of Jesus. The church at Ephesus was one of the most outstanding and historical congregations in the New Testament history. We have, of course, to begin with the establishment of the church, which we'll talk about more in detail in a moment. Later on, we have the Apostle Paul's uh, farewell address to the elders of this outstanding congregation. And then, of course, we have the epistle that he wrote to the congregation later on from a prison cell. And then finally we have a dictated letter from the Lord Jesus Christ right out of the glory courts of heaven. So the church at Ephesus was a very outstanding congregation. I want to talk a little while about that this morning. The apostle Paul was passing through and he found 12 people, 12 men, adults, meeting uh, in Ephesus. Now, let me just say a word about the city of Ephesus. It was a, one of the most outstanding cities of the day. It was a great post, great outstanding place. And one of the things that made it so outstanding was the fact that it was a religious center of the world and culture. The temple of the great goddess Diana was there. And I'm not going to bore you with the details of the dimensions of that place because it would take a little while. You might not even want to believe some of it if I told you, but it was one of the greatest temples ever built. It was one of the wonders of the world at that time, we're told. And people went there from all over the world because within uh, this great temple was the idol of this beautiful princess, this Diana, who's supposed to have fallen out of heaven, I believe is the way it goes. And people went there from all over the world to worship her. Now, I'll just say this in briefly details this morning, that their worship was a pagan worship. It was a lewd, immoral worship, very, very sensual. But that's the way the pagans worshiped. And they had levels of different, uh, according to Dr. McKnight, of uh, worships. And you graduated on up to the highest, which was the mystery of that temple. And it became something very, very uh, sought for and very, very uh, 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 sought after. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his epistle, he counteracted that. And uh, he showed that we have some mysteries too. And in that epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians, you'd be surprised how many times he mentions the word mystery in there. 
And he shows that the greatest mystery of all was when Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world and brought all people together in one body, the church. But now I'm beginning to get off on some bypass so early. Let's go back to the story. Now then, we find that uh, the Apostle Paul found these 12 men there, and I suppose they had families. But in this terrible, terrible situation, they were trying to maintain a little church of Christ over there. And I'm sure they must have had all kinds of problems. Uh, later on, he came back by and uh, taught these people and settled down with them for a little while. And great things were accomplished. Now, during the period of his uh, experience there, some things happened. And I want to mention these things to you. I'm not going to cite the passages, but they're all found there in the 19th chapter and in the surrounding verses. You can read them there if you want to. But we find something that took place over there, and I want to mention this because it's very outstanding in the history of this congregation. When he preached to these people, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people who had been worshiping in that old temple down yonder heard what he preached. They believed. Yes, because we know that you've got to believe. Uh, uh, the Bible tells us that we must believe uh, unless we can, uh, or else we can't be saved. But they not only believed, they turned or they repented. It's called turning here. And uh, they turned so completely till they burned their books and their guides and textbooks and so on, rituals that they had had in their worships. They burned these things. Now, boy, that's what I call a good, clean sweep of repentance. Just burn up their works that they'd had. $8,000 worth. They piled it up in the streets and burned it. And that's something outstanding, too. When a man will burn up that much profit to him, that goes to show you something about him, that he's willing to sacrifice his finances. That is something. Well, they turned. Not only did they do that, but as you read on over there, the Bible will tell you that they confessed and showed their deeds. Confessed. But then, of course, when they heard the truth, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the record tells us. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Well, that meant that they confessed that Jesus Christ, and then they were baptized. I want to tell you something right here. These people believed, repented, confessed, and were baptized. You know, that's what I did when I obeyed the gospel. That's what you did when you obeyed the gospel. That's what makes a church of Christ. Now, I want to fast forward for a moment and go over here to the epistle. And I'm getting off of my subject again. But I'm going to fast forward and go over here to the book of Ephesians where he wrote this church a letter. And I want to just drift right down there to the second chapter, and I want to show you what he said. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Aha! Saved by grace! You know, that's what the Calvinists tell us, and some Church of Christ preachers today. Well, we know we are saved by grace, but they say you are saved by grace only. You don't do any works. You don't have to do anything. 
God saves you by his grace. And they quote this passage. What if there's ever a passage in the world that they don't need to quote? It's that one. They think, though, they found a mare's nest right here. They think they've really done something when they found this verse. By grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is not of works. Well, first, I just want to say right here that any time you find works condemned in the New Testament scriptures, it's always the works of Moses' law. But any time you find works advanced and, and, and commanded, it's the works of faith, the commands of Jesus Christ. And it's the grace of God on one side, and it's the faith of man on the other side that makes this thing come together, and I'll obey the gospel. Now, here's what I'm talking to you about. The next time you hear a person tell you that you're saved by grace, and they quote this scripture to you, say, well, let's go see how they were saved by grace. They were saved by grace, by believing, by repenting of their sins and turning, the Bible says, and burning their books and confessing and showing their deeds and by being baptized. Now, these people who did that were saved by grace. And I'll advance it further than that. And I'm going to tell you, unless you've done that, you're not saved by grace because that's the grace of God right there. And it's not a works either. That is, it's not the works of the Moses law. It's not the works that God condemning. It's the commandments of Jesus Christ because that's what Paul preached down there. Well, we go on with our sermon now. After this, we find uh, that some great things happened. Paul found a synagogue of the Jews there in Ephesus. And he stayed, stayed there for three months and preached the gospel to these people. Tried to turn these Jews. But you know, his work was uh, interrupted. People became uh, uh, vicious against his teachings. The work of the Lord never runs smoothly. And if you think you're going to have a smooth job when you start working for the Lord, some young preachers want to become preachers because they think it's an easy job. Well, you can make an easy job out of it. And we've got a lot of preachers who've got an easy job because they'll never do anything. But if you work for the Lord and you put everything you've got into it and you're sincere about it, the devil's not going to leave you alone. You can be assured of that. Now, the Apostle Paul's work was interrupted in that synagogue, became so bad he had to leave. He had to, he had to get out of there. He went right downtown and found a, 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 a hall or a school or a, a lecture hall, the school of Tyrannus, and he entered into that. And for two years, he preached. I don't know how regular his preaching was, but over the space of two years, he preached down there. And his preaching was so great, it was so powerful, it was so moving, it was so renowned, till all of Asia heard about it, the Bible says. It was so outstanding. Miracles were done in the name of Jesus. They took napkins and they took handkerchiefs and they took aprons off of his body and took it down and laid it on the sick. And they even recovered from it. And things were going on so great. Well, those miracles stirred people up. Now, if you won't stir people up, you start performing miracles. Well, they performed some miracles. Well, they had some fellows down there who were looking on. And they had an old priest down there who was the chief of the priest, and his name was Sceva. Well, he had seven sons, and they were young priests, I reckon. But 
they had seen Paul do this, and so they thought they would try their hand. They wanted to become some miracle workers. They were just about as much miracle workers as we have today. They were some fakes. That's what they were. But they said they were going to try their hand. And they found a man there who had an evil spirit or demon. So they walked up and decided they'd ply their trade on him. And they said, we command you in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, that Paul preaches to come out of him. Well, now, they'd overstepped their limits right there. Yes, sir. And I won't tell you if something happens. This is almost smileable. And if it weren't so serious, I'd just smile real big about it. But I'll tell you what happened. That evil spirit and that man said, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? And leaped on them. Tore them up. Ripped their clothes off of them and scratched them and clawed them and handled them so badly till they went out of that house like scared rabbits. Went down that street naked as jaybird, just as uh, fast as they could go. And I'll tell you, everybody on the street corners was pointing at them and laughing. Now, I don't have much. But I'll tell you, as one of my aunts used to say, I'd give a pretty to turn, that, turn them loose on Tulsa, Oklahoma. And a few television stations that I hear from place to place. And see what happens. Well, the Bible said that when this happened, the word of the Lord was magnified because everybody knew that they were fakes and everybody knew that what Paul was doing was the work of the Lord. And the Bible said the name of Jesus was magnified and the word of the Lord grew mightily. Well, that's my sermon for this morning, magnifying the name of Jesus. Now, you know that we can magnify the name of Jesus in our lives. We must magnify the name of Jesus. You know, the name of Jesus is the name of all names. It blossoms on the pages of history like ten flowers of 10,000 springtimes. And it sounds and resounds down through the ages like the music of all choirs, both visible and invisible. The name of Jesus is the sweetest name on seraph's songs. Sweetest name on mortal tongues, the song says. But you know, it not, was not always so. The name of Jesus was a, was a despised and a rejected name. In fact, to the business, uh, Isaiah the prophet said he would be despised and rejected of men. And that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you know why that was? You know, I'd preached a long time before I really got to the root of this thing and really knew why it was. Those Jews had been promised a Messiah, and they were looking for a Messiah to come. But they warped their minds over what Messiah was going to be and what he was supposed to look like. They got it in their mind that he was supposed to be a political fellow or a military man or a man of royalty who would be born in a king's palace. He would be a prince. He'd be walking around. He'd maybe ride in a chariot. Maybe he'd have white horses drawing him. Maybe he'd have coachmen to attend him. That's what they kind of had an idea of. But here comes this fella, born in a manger and laid in a feed trough and wrapped up in burlap, grew up in obscurity, didn't even have a home. He said, foxes have holes and fowls in the air half nest, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. Slept out in the mountains 
hair was wet with the dew of heaven, selected him 12 losers, and they walked all around over the country together. That man, that man's our Messiah? No way. That's not our Messiah. He was a disgrace, and they were ashamed of him. And they didn't want anybody going around calling him their Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah to come. We're looking for the real Messiah. Get rid of that man. They did everything they could. I remember a story that came out of World War II. One little Jewish boy was, was associating with Protestants. And uh, the Protestants were on their job. And they were really telling him about Jesus and teaching to him about Jesus. And he got so impressed with it till he, his faith began to shake a little bit. But he got very sick. And the priest came to him. And he was asking the priest, he said, Priest, what's the difference in Jesus and Messiah? Well, he said, now this Jesus fella, he's just an imposter who came. And he's, he's, he's not the Messiah. But Messiah is really coming sometimes. The little young fella looked up at him and said, Well, priest, when Messiah comes, what's he going to have on Jesus? That's a good question. When Messiah gets here, what's he going to have on this fella? He's done everything Moses' law said he was going to do. He's done everything the prophet said he was going to do. Now what's Messiah going to do when he gets here, if this is not the Messiah? That's right. Well, they finally killed him. They nailed him to a cross. His name, Jesus said one time, you believe in God, believe also in me. But they won't do that. But they got him, and they nailed him to a cross to get him out of the way. They laid him in Joseph's new tomb. Out there somewhere close by, there was a beautiful little garden. I know it must have been a pretty one because the rich man's garden. It must have had the fairest flowers and the prettiest shrubs and everything. So they pulled the nails out of those cold, icy hands and blue vein feet, and they laid him away. This was through a benefactor of his by the name of Joseph of Amarthea, a rich, prosperous city. Joseph evidently was a big shot. He was a rich man, and he evidently had some, some uh, uh, power with Pilate. The Bible says he went in and craved the body of Jesus, begged the body of Jesus. It, uh, he had to put, put on some kind of little bit of a pressure, but he was yielded. He was a secret disciple. You know, I reckon he's afraid of Herod's business if he just spoke right out and was open with it. I've known a lot of church members that way today. They're good, they're good church members, but they're a little bit shy about what they believe. They don't want to talk to their boss about it. They don't want to talk to their associates about it. Joseph was kind of that way. But though he was a coward in life, he was emboldened by the death of Jesus. And so after Jesus died, he felt badly about that. And he came in and he sought for the body of Jesus and got it. And, and they hurriedly wrapped him up and took him out there and put him in his own tomb that he had prepared for his own death. I'll have to give that to him. He, yield, he gave him a good burying place. That's, that, that's pretty sorry, but that's the best he could do now. He gave him his burying place. And they put a stone over the door so he wouldn't come out. But the enemies told Pilate, now listen, those fellows have got some kind of a uh, rumor floating around here that he's going to come out of the grave. You put some guards over that door and you hold him there. 
so they won't go in there and steal that body and take it out of there and claim he's resurrected. Well, God knows how to handle things. And I don't know when man will ever learn that he can't stop the own moving power of God Almighty. Those guards went down there. And of course, God chloroformed that whole bunch, you know. They all went to sleep. And uh, they went to sleep. And when they went to sleep, of course, Jesus came out of the tomb. He didn't have to have a stone rolled away. They rolled a stone away so they could look in, not so he could get out. And when they looked in, he was already gone. And uh, he showed himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. He came and he went, and he came and he went. But after a while, one day, after 30 days, he went with a walk with his disciples out east from the city of Jerusalem up a little hillock out there, the Mount of Olives, they call it. And he was walking up that hill with them, teaching them, telling them about himself, and telling them about what to do, telling them he was going to leave. And all of a sudden, they watched, and his feet began to move off the ground, began to move up, 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 up. And they're looking up straight up at him. Somehow, I think they get the feeling that this is goodbye for real. And they look up, and God sent a cloud down out of heaven and wrapped him in his folds. And like old Elijah of old, he went away. He no more got to heaven till he looked back down and saw those disciples. And I know he had a tender feeling for them. He loved them. They were men. They were earthly. They were humans. He dispatched an angel down there quicker than lightning. And that angel stood by their side and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing upward into heaven? For this same Jesus whom you've seen go away into heaven shall also come in like manner as you've seen him go away. And they were told to go to Jerusalem and stand up there and wait. But let's watch Jesus as he went away. As he went away and they got up under close to heaven. And I don't know much about heaven. But I'll tell you what. When he got up under real close somewheres, he got close to the gates of heaven and the Psalms 24 was fulfilled. There was, an, there was a chorus that started singing somewhere, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And somebody asked, Who is this King of glory? And they said, The Lord mighty in battle is he. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us that the angels lifted up the gates of heaven that day, and Jesus Christ walked in. His work finished. My redemption finished. He had done his job. He had come home. 33 years he had been out of that place. Now he's come home. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in Daniel 7 and 14. It said, And I saw in the night vision, one like unto the Son of Man come to the Ancient of Days, and a kingdom was given unto him. And glory and power and so on. Well, listen, back to my subject now. He went down that street, main street of glory, to God sits on the throne down yonder on the other end. And you know what? God shouted out and said, Let everybody in heaven bow down and worship. And every angel, every seraphim, every cherubim, everything in glory fell down and worshiped Jesus that day. God reached down and took a crown. 
and laid it on Jesus' head. And the Bible said, He gave him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and things under the earth. So now, the name of Jesus is magnified. Let's talk a little bit about that. Why is the name of Jesus magnified? Because God the Father magnified it. Now only in this name is salvation found because God has planned it so. Acts 4 and 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given unto heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Moses, Abraham, Joshua, Elijah stand out in prominence. But this name stands out in preeminence. John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I am the way. What does he mean by that? He physically? No. His direction, his instruction is the way. And the way you get to heaven is through Jesus. And that means by what he tells you and what he leaves for you. He is the way. Well, next, it's the only name that will validate our prayers. Today, that name is so wonderful till it validates our prayer. The Bible tells us in John 15, 7, 16, that whosoever, that whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, he may give it to you. It's the only name heaven will acknowledge. And when we say our prayers, you notice we always conclude in Jesus' name. And as the Apostle Paul says over there in Ephesians, for Jesus' sake. Down south, the old timers used to, and they about stopped it now. Some wise people have stopped them from it, but I, I still believe in it. You say, for Je in Jesus' name and for his sake. I'll tell you, whatever God does for you today is for Jesus' sake. Because God loves his son. And God honors his son. It's the only name that will validate my deeds. I don't care if I'm philanthropist as they call it and I give a million dollars to the college down yonder and get my picture put all over the front page of the paper it doesn't amount to a hill of beans spiritually speaking unless I do it in Jesus name and that means by his authority it's the only name that will validate my work in this world and that's the reason why I tell people you've got to be in Christ for your deeds to accomplish anything because nothing else will. Also, how may I magnify his name? By rendering obedience. And I spoke to you about that to begin with. I reiterate it. I must obey. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. You know the word Lord means master. And it's inconceivable that you have a master, you being the servant, and you won't do what the master tells you. Why are you calling me master? Master, but you won't do what I tell you to do, Jesus says. So then I must do what he says. And pick people who devise their own plan of salvation. People who have their more beach types of salvation. And their other various ways of being saved. They can't expect to be magnified. I magnify the name of Jesus through that nor expect any benefit from it. I must obey, which, of course, as I said, is salvation by grace 
believing on him, repenting of our sins, confessing my faith in him, and by being baptized and becoming a member of his church. Next, to love the Lord Jesus and his salvation magnifies the name of Jesus. Psalms 40 and 16 says, Let all those who seek, let all of those that seek uh, thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Next, uh, I uh, magnify the Lord Jesus by putting him into my life and by manifesting him in my life and by showing him in my life. It's inconceivable to be one of his people and not magnify him. But we have some people today who claim to be followers of Jesus, but they magnify everybody else besides Jesus. They magnify a big ball player, maybe. That's all they talk about. They, baptize, they magnify a big politician, maybe, a big statesman even. Or maybe some preacher. But if I want to magnify Jesus, I've got to show him in my life. And show the people that I'm his. Because I've involved his teachings and his principles and his philosophy into my life. So much so that people can see it. You know the man, the crippled man at the gate, at the beautiful gate, who was healed and who joined on with Peter and Paul and went on inside the gate, leaping and praising God. The Bible said that the people who looked on saw that man and saw these people who had done it. They said they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It was evident. It was obvious in their life. They talked like him. They acted like him. They seemed like him. They magnified him. How do I do that? By reading his word. And by praying. By constantly striving to be more like him every day. And I'm magnifying him when I do that. I read a beautiful little story one time. That uh, struck me as very, very touching. But it illustrates this fact so much. It was a story of a preacher who had some friends in Kansas City, Missouri. He said it was in the home of some lovely Christian people who had one sweet little daughter, and she was stricken with a malady that cut her down, and she died. Before they realized it, after she had gone, they had no photograph of her, nothing whatsoever, not even a snapshot that was adequate. And these, and, and, and they were old and not taken recently. And they were heartbroken and came to this preacher and said, oh, if we just had a picture of our loved youngster before us today. And he said, I know an artist in the back streets of Kansas City who one time earned a great livelihood, but his age and other circumstances forced him from the center of the profession. He had the skill like the artist today to do uh, to do for the FBI. And if you will describe somebody, they can draw the picture and flash it on the screen or on the paper, and people can recognize the individual from what the artist has portrayed. 
Well, they went to the old art, to the old artist, and to this prof professional man, and uh, they told him about it, and he said, "Don't get your hopes up, but give me all the descriptions that you can of your little daughter. Tell me the color of her hair, of her eyes, of her size, of what she liked. Bring me her toys." Tell me some things about her, what she said, and you go home. And when I call you, you come. I'll make a, do as best I can to make a composite of your little daughter. Well, they went home, and in weeks, they got a call. They went to the old artist in the back streets of Kansas City in a dusty little studio back there. And when they walked in, he told them and said, now, as I told you, don't be disappointed if I don't do what you expect because I've done the best I can. He had, I have a seat here. And he unveiled the picture. Oh, they jumped to their feet and rushed to that picture. Tears spring in their eyes and said, how could you possibly have done it? You're bound to have had some kind of picture. There was a likeness of their little daughter like they couldn't believe. You know what happened? He took all the evidences and put it together and people were able to recognize it. Now that's what we do with Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. You've never seen Jesus. But as Apostle Peter said, whom having not seen we loved and who though now we see him not yet rejoicing, we, yet believing we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But I can take this evidence right here. I can read everything there is about Jesus. And I can learn it. And I can put it into my life. And when I put that all together into my life, and when you put it all together in your life, people are going to see Jesus in it. And his name is going to be glorified, magnified. I have one little poem here I want to read before I close. The poem says, so he painted a picture of Judas. And the model who posed for the part had a face so repulsive and cruel till it taxed even the artist. Great art. And a story he told as he painted the story of Jesus so sweet. When it was finished, the man took his wages and just rambled on out into the street. Years passed, and the artist grown famous wished a picture of Jesus to paint. So he searched till he found him a model with a sweet, kindly face of a saint. But before he had picked up his brushes, cried the artist, I've done you, I know. That's true, said the man. I was Judas. But it happened a long time ago. And the man in the story that you told me is coming to my heart, thanks to you. And it isn't my face that you see, sir, but the face of the man shining through. Ladies and gentlemen, is Christ in your life today? Is his name magnified in your life in what you do, in what you say? If he's not, we're just playing a game. Now that's what it's all about. I've told you what it takes to magnify the name of Jesus by obedience. 
I've told you what it takes to be saved by grace. Have you done that? Or maybe you're a member of the church. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus through the years. But somewhere down the road, the road got rough or distractions came your way and took your mind away. And you strayed away from the straight and narrow path. Don't you want to come back and renew your allegiance to him? Take that name that's above every name that the Apostle Paul called an more excellent name. And wear it proudly as long as you live. If that's the case, we give you the privilege while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.